0: Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem.
1: Zermina Akbari is a registered nurse and holistic nutritionist.
0: Welcome, Zermina. I think PCOS can be such an umbrella term. A variety of symptoms, everything from excess facial hair, hair thinning on the head. Some women are on the obesity spectrum. Some women are very slim and slender. I do see a lot of depression, anxiety, Women who have a lot of digestive issues where they're having severe bloating, acid reflux, compromised immune systems. I also find that they also have autoimmune conditions. PCOS is taught to just be more of a fertility issue, but I'm finding that there's so many other components to PCOS and it's not just a reproductive issue. It's a metabolic issue and there's so many other risk factors. So. This is where I think lifestyle medicine really thrives in supporting all of those lifestyle components and preventing any risk factors that women with PCOS can potentially have, such as cancer, heart disease, diabetes, stroke.
1: I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility fad, fact, or fiction. Here's the latest from Dr. Shala. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking about polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS, a topic that is very important to me because it's a condition that I struggle with for all of my adult life and part of my young adult life. And it's a condition that impacts many women. One in every 10 women is suffering with PCOS, and some estimates say it might be even higher. PCOS is one of the most common causes of infertility. And those who are suffering with PCOS may find symptoms like irregular menstrual cycles. They may see symptoms like acne or abnormal hair growth, hair loss, weight gain. If they're evaluated with their doctor, they may see elevations of male hormones on their laboratory. If they have an ultrasound, they may find ovaries that display a polycystic appearance. Now, women can present very differently with PCOS. I think one of the most common misconceptions is that someone with PCOS is going to look a certain way. And that couldn't be further from the truth because PCOS presents very differently, especially amongst different ethnicities. And so it's really important to work with someone who's experienced with PCOS patients to help you get that proper diagnosis. There are many patients that I see who unfortunately have been missed and may go years without getting the proper diagnosis and the proper help that they need. It's important because they're at risk for so many health conditions. Things like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, fatty liver, elevated cholesterol, sleep apnea, and endometrial cancer. And one of the things that I wanted to point out today is that PCOS patients are at increased risk for mental health conditions. It's estimated at least 50% of women with PCOS are at risk for developing a mental health condition. It's something that I honestly don't hear discussed enough. And in the past, we blame these mental health conditions that patients with PCOS had on poor body image due to their weight or due to abnormal hair growth on the face or acne. But it's been shown that these risks are independent of these features. And so all women with PCOS are at risk. Now we don't know the causes of PCOS. Most accept that PCOS is a combination of a genetic component along with environment. There is some evidence that comes to us from animal studies that shows increased circulating male hormone exposure can affect a growing fetus and increase the risk of PCOS and increase mood disorders, in those with PCOS. And so the truth is we really don't know the cause, but this is a very interesting thing to note. The mental health risk for patients with PCOS is just one of the reasons that I recommend adopting lifestyle practices that incorporate a nutrition plan that greatly reduces or eliminates processed foods and incorporates whole foods and exercise. The goal is about 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise five days a week. The other thing you wanna pay attention to is your sleep, I usually recommend that patients try to get about seven to eight hours of quality sleep, meaning that you're not having interruptions overnight. Do you snore? Do you wake up tired? These are the things that may signal that you need to get a sleep assessment. So working with someone to take a look at that, because we do know that patients with PCOS are at increased risk for sleep apnea, as I mentioned earlier. And so it's really important that you get the proper help that you need. And while I'm all for supporting health with lifestyle, there are many situations where medications are absolutely needed to treat medical conditions that are associated with PCOS. If you're struggling with PCOS or you're struggling with symptoms that may be associated with anxiety or depression, please make sure that you seek out medical attention from your doctor or from your mental health provider that can get you the help you need. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoy today's interview. PCOS is the most common cause of anovulatory infertility and is a topic that's very important to me because I struggle with it for many years and it still impacts my life currently. I have been so eager to discuss PCOS on the podcast because it's a condition that impacts so many women dealing with infertility. Zermina Akbari is a registered nurse and holistic nutritionist with graduate training in functional medicine and nutritional science. Her journey to becoming a women's health nurse specialist was rooted in her own health challenges. Her diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome, Hashimoto's, and ultimately thyroid cancer were barriers faced when she wanted to start a family. She decided to turn to functional medicine to understand and mitigate the root causes of these diseases instead of merely treating the symptoms associated with them. Zermina's practice focuses on hormones, gut health, and conception. She identifies the root causes through comprehensive lab testing and helps patients thrive through lifestyle medicine. Her passion lies in empowering and educating women on taking control of their health and fertility. Welcome, Zermina. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thank you, Shola. I'm so honored to be here, and I'm excited to talk about all things PCOS.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on because I have not had an expert guest speak about PCOS yet. And as I said in the intro, it is one of the most common causes of infertility, and so I think it's really important that we discuss that on the show. And having you on today to be able to help us discuss how lifestyle can impact PCOS will be really helpful for listeners. How did you get interested in working with PCOS patients?
0: Yeah, it wasn't like my first line of a career choice. Where hey, I want to just work with women with PCOS. I myself have been diagnosed with PCOS and just like you mentioned, I still struggle with it from time to time. So it's something that I definitely have to keep track of and be aware of. I got diagnosed at the age of 18 and I believe I had it a few years prior to actually officially getting diagnosis. I remember having very irregular cycles. I was very much more on the slim, slender side. So I would go from one doctor to another doctor, and they simply just said, it's very normal to have irregular cycles, absent cycles, because it does take some time for your hormones to regulate themselves. So I didn't really think much of it. I did start to get more abdominal pain every now and then, but I started to also realize that now my period was not just coming every three to four months, it then went from every three to four months to coming every six months. And then ultimately it took about a year and a half for my period to actually show up. So the official diagnosis actually happened when the abdominal pain became so severe that I was rushed into the emergency room and was told that they needed to do a laparoscopic procedure. And upon ultrasound, they found a very large cyst. And that large cyst actually turned into a torsion, which was causing the blood supply blockage. And that was when they saw all of these small follicles or polycystic ovaries. And that's when I officially got the diagnosis and then was prescribed birth control and was told, come back when you want to get pregnant. And I think
1: a lot of women with PCOS have a similar story in that they may not have had the diagnosis right away. Many young women who get the diagnosis of PCOS are put on birth control pills, and there's a place for birth control pills for sure. I'm not someone who's opposed to birth control pills. It definitely can be helpful for those with PCOS because sometimes it is quite difficult to have a menstrual cycle, and there are negative impacts of not having a menstrual cycle, especially if you're going for lengthy periods of time with having unopposed estrogen. And so that's often commonly done, you know, go on a birth control pill, let us know when you want to try to get pregnant. And Mm -hmm. I think then people get off the pill and then don't really realize what to do at that point. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened after when you were considering trying to conceive, if you could share a
0: little bit of your story? Yeah, so I was put on various different types of birth control. I think I was on all of them. And the reason why I kept changing them or my doctor kept prescribing me a different one because each one was not making me feel good after a certain period of time. The positive thing was I was getting a cycle every month, Clockwork, The cycle was coming in and I was having that issue, but I didn't feel so well on it. And so they eventually kept changing it for me. And then when I was ready to start a family, I then came off of the birth control pill and my cycle at the time started to be irregular, but not as bad as it was before. I was getting in every three months, every four months. Now, when you're trying to conceive, that can become very challenging. So I learned a lot about body literature and learned about how important ovulation is. And so I started to track my cycles, everything from using the OPK strips to basal body temping, using ovulation tracking monitors to learn that I wasn't ovulating. And I've always thought, as long as you're getting a cycle, you should also be ovulating. You should, but that's not always the case for everyone, especially when we make PCOS. So I learned that my main cause of infertility was the inovulatory cycles. So that was how I learned that, okay, ovulation is a really big issue for me. And I need to really learn how I can get myself to ovulate. And this is where I went through more rounds of letrozole, clomid, and that didn't help. So that's when I really got so very much interested in learning about more of an integrated functional medicine approach to PCOS to understand what my unique underlying cause of my PCOS type is like.
1: You know, an integrated or a functional approach is a great approach for those with PCOS. I mean, I would argue it's a condition that probably is best treated in that manner. Of course, there's, you know, ways to treat it conventionally that I use often, but I think. It's a condition that really responds to lifestyle changes. And that's something that I personally experienced as well. You know, when I was at very poor health, I really noticed a lot of my symptoms got out of control, like acne, weight gain, no menses, hair loss, all of those things. What kind of symptoms do you see in the women that you treat with PCOS?
0: a variety of symptoms. Everything from excess facial hair, hair thinning on the head. Some women are on the obesity spectrum. Some women are very slim and slender. I do see a lot of depression, anxiety. Women who have a lot of digestive issues where they're having severe bloating, acid reflux, compromised immune systems. I also find that they also have autoimmune conditions. PCOS is taught to just be more of a fertility issue, but I'm finding that there's so many other components to PCOS and it's not just a reproductive issue. It's a metabolic issue and there's so many other risk factors. So this is where I think lifestyle medicine really thrives in supporting all of those lifestyle components and preventing any risk factors that women with PCOS can potentially have, such as cancer, heart disease, diabetes stroke.
1: Yeah, I agree because I think, as you said earlier, often PCOS gets reduced to do you want to get pregnant or do you not want to get pregnant and go on a birth control pill as opposed to really discussing With the patient who's going through PCOS, what are some of the things that they may experience outside of the reproductive system, even if they're not trying to conceive? Very few of my patients really have a knowledge of those things. And so I think it's really important to make sure that we spread awareness that PCOS is not just a condition that affects the reproductive system. It's a condition, like you said, that can increase risk for things like endometrial cancer, heart disease, high cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, and mental health disorders. So it's really important that you work with a practitioner. We've been talking a lot about PCOS, but for those who are listening who may not be familiar with PCOS, tell us how we can arrive to the diagnosis of PCOS.
0: That's a very good question. And I think PCOS can be such an umbrella term, but it's very important to make sure that you're working with a practitioner that is running proper testing. Currently, the way that we diagnose PCOS is by using the Rotterdam criteria, and you would need to have two of the three categories. So one is if you have irregular cycles, that could be really long cycles. It can be irregular cycles where you're not even having a cycle. The second is having high androgens, which are your male hormones, or you can have symptoms of that. Symptoms of that would include having excess facial hair, deepening of the voice, male pattern baldness. So whether we see high testosterone, high DHA on blood work or you're having symptoms of that, that would be the second category. And then the third one would be not having, um, having actual polycystic ovaries. And this we can actually detect by via ultrasound. Now the name itself can be very misleading because a lot of patients are saying that, well, I need to have cysts on the ovaries in order to have the diagnosis. You can get an ultrasound, your ovaries can look very normal, but if you have the irregular cycle and the high androgens, that would be enough to go ahead and diagnose you with PCOS.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the issues is that a lot of times those who are not really consistently seeing PCOS patients in their practice, they may have had you know training in medical school, Um, that really give them the idea that they're looking for an overweight woman with lots of acne and hair growth on the face. But PCOS presents very differently amongst all women and also amongst ethnicities. So sometimes you may say, well, we're looking for hair on the face, but certain ethnicities may have less dense hair, and you may be only noticing one or two, which could classify them as having hair growth on the face. And mm-hmm. so we have to also take that into account. And some women also may show signs of things like diabetes, even at a slim weight.
0: Yeah. And
1: so I think it's really important for this personalized. Can you tell us a little bit about the different types of PCOS that we can see that may help us a little bit more to understand why PCOS can present differently?
0: I think back to the diagnosis of PCOS, what I see often in my practice is a lot of times women with PCOS can be misdiagnosed. Because it's so, so common right now for women to have PCOS, we're starting to see an increase in women having PCOS right now. And whether that's just always been the case or we're having more knowledge in the space, but I'm starting to also see that there is this misdiagnosis of PCOS versus hypothalamic amenorrhea. And that's really more of under eating, over exercising, and the brain just stops communicating to the ovaries where you don't have a cycle anymore. And so sometimes patients can immediately say, oh, well, or patients can get that immediate diagnosis of PCOS. So that's why I think comprehensive blood work and testing and evaluation is so important to be able to differentiate the two and rule out certain diagnosis. In terms of the four different types of PCOS, I think once you have that diagnosis of PCOS, we can instantly just go rushing into, well, what do I do next? how do I go ahead and treat this? And there isn't a one size approach to everyone that has PCOS. I think once you have that diagnosis of PCOS, you now have to dig a little bit deeper and say, well, what is my PCOS type? Or I actually like to think of it as what is your unique driver to your PCOS? And so this is where you look at the four different types or phenotypes and Those would be the inflammatory PCOS, where you have high C-reactive protein, homocysteine levels, and inflammatory markers. So we would be testing for that. There's also the very common one, which is insulin resistance. And of course, for that, we would be running things like your fasting glucose, fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C, a two-hour glucose tolerance test. That would help us to identify if you do have some component of insulin resistance. Then there is the adrenal type PCOS, which is common with a lot of patients who are more or less lender side, and that is where they have an excess output of the stress hormone cortisol and DHEA. And then the last one is the high androgens and high testosterone, and that would be checking by blood to see what your total and free testosterone and DHEA levels are.
1: Yeah, and that's why it's, as you mentioned, it's so important to work with a practitioner. One of the reasons I always want to spread awareness about PCOS, and I don't know if you see this as well, I see a lot of women who are really going it alone. They are, well, I thought I was supposed to wait a year. Uh, I'm trying to conceive. I need to wait at least a year before I reach out to someone. And a lot of women don't know that if you have PCOS or think you have PCOS, you really should reach out to work with someone immediately.
0: Yeah, I do agree. And I think often times, at least in my case, and this is what I hear often with a lot of my patients, is that once they get the diagnosis of pieces, whether they were diagnosed in their early 20s and their late teens, they were put on the birth control pill and then they were told, when you are wanting to get pregnant, come back to us then. Then they're off the birth control and now they're having all of the same symptoms that they were prior to the birth control pill. And now they're told, now we need to send you to a fertility specialist. And how you do things like comid, letrozole. And I'm so incredibly happy that we have that. And we're fortunate that we have that technology available. But there's so much that you can do at six months, a year prior to, or even when you first get that diagnosis of PCOS, I think there needs to be that formal education of, this is how it's going to impact your reproductive health. Let's go ahead and talk about ways how we can improve this. So that when it comes to time to want to feel pregnant, then you're not having to feel like you're starting all over again, which is what it felt like for me, where it was like, I wish there was some formal education. Why didn't anyone set me up with a nutritionist? Why didn't someone run proper comprehensive testing? Why didn't I get educated about some lifestyle measures that I could have taken to not put me in that position that I was in when I was trying to conceive?
1: because like you said, most of the time it's just get off the pill. And a lot of times I think patients just imagine that it's going to happen for them immediately. And for those who do have irregular ovulation, they could benefit from a lot of things, as you said, like nutrition, removing toxins, stress reduction, improving their sleep. Because Mm -hmm. we do see that there is some benefit in things like for some patients weight loss or blood glucose control in terms of helping them to ovulate some women can ovulate on their own which you know really takes us to this other idea and one of the misconceptions that i see a lot is that women with PCOS must use assistance to conceive and while a large proportion of women do seek assistance to conceive and you know i did with a few of my pregnancies There is a large number of women with PCOS that can conceive without assistance.
0: Yeah, and I see this often, and this is where we really want to get to the underlying cause and say, well, if you are having inovulatory cycles, let's see what the cause of that inovulation is. If you are having HPA dysfunction, so your hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, which is like your stress system, if that's dysfunctioning, your body's in this fight-flight mode and it's not wanting to be in that reproductive load. So your body's mm-hmm. kind of saving you. A lot of this I, I commonly see and it could have been prevented with a lot of education. Some women do need reproductive assistance and that's okay. But I find that even implementing those lifestyle changes can improve your outcomes of having a higher success rate with the reproductive technology that's out there right now. That's a very common myth that I see. And personally, myself, I was also told that without the use of IVF, I would not be able to fall pregnant. And it's just smarter for me to go through that route. So I wasn't very well convinced about that. And I really wanted to kind of approach it from all of the lifestyle avenues, working on my stress management sleep blood sugar management, stress levels, nutrition, work on those nutrient deficiencies that the birth control, like that was another thing I wasn't, you know, talked to I was so grateful I was on because it's so important to have that monthly bleed because that can also be detrimental if I'm going a year or two years without having a bleed. But I wish I was informed that well, when you're on the birth control, you're going to be depleted of B vitamins and these are things that we certainly need to work on and support the brain ovarian connection back up again because birth control is that where it's completely shutting off that brain ovarian connection so that you don't fall pregnant.
1: I think that education piece is is missing there and and that's really, most of the time when I'm meeting with patients with PCOS, a lot may have misconceptions about the conditions. Many people have been to many doctors and haven't been diagnosed or been misdiagnosed, as you said. And so I think it's really important if you feel like you're not being heard or maybe you haven't gotten the diagnosis, it's okay to you know seek help from another practitioner if you're not comfortable because there are situations where you might, have the diagnosis, but you just haven't gotten properly diagnosed. What kind of things do you do to screen patients and really get to the diagnosis?
0: I like to start with foundations first in terms of screening and comprehensive blood work. I like to do a combination of comprehensive conventional blood work. So that's looking at everything from a full thyroid panel, not just looking at their TSH, but running a full thyroid panel, really not any autoimmunity because that can also be very common with PCOS, having a low thyroid function. A lot of times patients who have slow metabolism, cold hands, cold feet, all those symptoms of having hypothyroidism are also symptoms of having PCOS as well. So we also want to make sure that we're addressing that. Uh, Looking at a complete metabolic panel, looking at their glucose and insulin markers. I'm very big on testing nutritional deficiencies because I think that's very important for reproductive, hormonal, and thyroid health. I also like to test prolactin levels. Prolactin is a hormone that is produced. The pituitary gland when we are nursing, and sometimes we find that that's also a common thing that we see with women with PCOS is that they also have high levels of prolactin. So there is a list of comprehensive blood work that I like to do in addition to all the hormones, your cycle day three labs, your testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, LH, FSH. I also like to really look into more functional medicine labs and to test for gut health as well. So I personally like to use the GI-MAP test, which looks at the overall gut microbiome. It looks at intestinal health markers like beta-glucuronidase, which is an enzyme that helps you to recycle estrogen. Uh, And anytime that we are dealing with hormones, we always have to look at our gut health because without a healthy gut, we're not able to metabolize and process those hormones properly.
1: It's really important to look at all those things and really get a comprehensive look because as you said sometimes people are really having basic labs and they may have some other issue that isn't pcos do they have a thyroid dysfunction or something else that makes them think they have pcos because hypothyroidism and pcos can have similar symptoms and you can have both as well so it's really important to get a comprehensive panel to really look at all those things one of your areas of focus is nutrition And I think nutrition is so key for those who are dealing with PCOS. What is your approach for nutrition for the patient with PCOS?
0: And that's a really good question. I don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all approach for every woman that has PCOS. Just as we talked about, even with the four different phenotypes, if you and I shall have, let's say, the adrenal type PCOS. We may have to eat a little bit differently. So our biochemistry is going to be very different. We're going to look at nutrient status, mineral status. So I like to have a very personalized approach with women with PCOS. So if I find that they're deficient in certain nutrients, we're going to make sure that we're going to add that in there. But understanding what type of PCOS or what their root drivers to PCOS is, that's also going to help us and understanding what kind of a nutrition plan we need to have for them. But generally speaking, I find that all of my patients actually benefit from a whole food, nutrient-dense diet. And what I mean by that is making sure that majority of what you're eating comes in its most natural form, natural whole state. And so trying to show up more around the perimeter of the grocery store, not in the middle aisles. That I think is very, very helpful for a lot of women. And just doing that alone can have a huge impact. Another thing that I really like to focus on is managing blood sugar. I feel like for all of the different types of PCOS, blood sugar management is incredibly important, even for women who don't have PCOS. I find that that is one of the most important nutritional steps that you can take to better your health in so many ways.
1: It's definitely personalized. And there's a lot of people who swear by going vegan or swear by going keto or Mediterranean for fertility. And I'm sure I can find someone who might be doing well on any of the plans, but there are definitely pitfalls (laughs) to different types of diet. And I'm, as you said, I'm not somebody who says, hey, everybody needs to follow this plan because I think it depends on the person. If I have to give kind of an broad overview, I'm usually recommending the Mediterranean type of eating because I find that that's mm-hmm. the most flexible for most patients. It's not as restrictive. And as you know, I mentioned, there can be issues for those with PCOS. There is increased risk for things like eating disorders. So I try yeah. to make sure that we have a type of plan that's going to be more flexible for those with PCOS, because I know there's so many restrictive plans out there. What are your thoughts on some of the different styles of eating and why that might be problematic for those with PCOS?
0: And I'm so glad that you brought that up because a lot of the depression and anxiety that's associated with PCOS, one of the other mental health issues that we deal with is the eating disorders and having that imprinted with the diagnosis like PCOS You have to be very, very careful to go down that rabbit hole of, I have to eat only vegan, I have to just be keto, or I have to be on a paleo diet. Because you also have to realize that PCOS is a lifelong condition. There is no cure for it right now. So what is going to be the best approach for you to make it sustainable? Now, have these diets work for some patients? Yes, absolutely. Doesn't mean it's going to work for you as well. Yes. And just because it's working temporarily doesn't mean that they're going to have issues long term later on as well, too. So I love that you use the word flexible and something that's more doable for patients because it has to be sustainable. And there's so many dairy-free and gluten-free. Mm-hmm. And you have to be soy-free. I have a lot of clients that come to me and say, for the last six months, I've been dairy-free, gluten-free, and I haven't noticed a difference. Mm-hmm. The other set of clients who have been off of it, and they're like, all of my digestive symptoms went away great, Mm -hmm. that does work for you. But we have to just be mindful that you have to have sustainable changes. And I'm not saying that these diets or these nutritional approaches are bad. Sometimes they can actually be very beneficial, but I don't recommend them long-term. I think it's good to use them therapeutically for a short-term period, but not to use them long-term because it's really not sustainable.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the reasons why you can find those who might be doing well on a vegan diet or a keto diet or paleo, as you said, is because one of the main components of all those diets and why they're successful is removal of processed food. So right. if you go on a juice fast, I'm not a fan of that, but you know you remove processed food, guess what? You're gonna feel a lot better. If you go on a carnivore plan, I'm not a fan of that, but you remove fat processed food, you're gonna help to control your blood sugars, you're gonna feel better, and You know, maybe you're going to be losing weight, but like you said, it's not sustainable and PCOS is a lifelong condition. I can't tell you how much it bothers me that there are a lot of people online who try to sell the idea of curing your PCOS and curing it by doing X diet, uh, gluten free or dairy free. And while I'm not opposed to gluten-free or dairy-free, as you said, it might help someone and someone might have improved digestion, but you do not have to be gluten-free or dairy-free. And in fact, there are some studies, you know, nurses health study that showed that there are some that do have improved fertility by eating whole fat dairy. And so it's hard to go and say, oh, everybody has to be dairy-free.
0: I very much agree with you. And if you have an autoimmune condition, if there are other, again, diagnoses associated with PCOS where you could benefit from that, it may not necessarily be helping the PCOS, but it could be helping the other condition. And that's also reducing your symptoms. But I am a big fan of using full-fat dairy for some of my clients. And then there are some clients where I say, let's work on those inflammatory markers and you have increased intestinal permeability where your gut lining is not intact as we want it to be, let's go ahead and reduce that dairy or eliminate it altogether or if they have an autoimmune condition. So temporarily we would do that as we're working on healing the gut, but it's not an all across the board recommendation that I would make for every client of mine.
1: Yeah, and you've touched on the gut a couple of times here. So I want to go a little bit deeper into that. Why is gut health so important for those with PCOS?
0: It's very, very important because gut health is tightly connected, as I mentioned, to our hormonal health. Our hormones get processed through the gut, and women with PCOS have a imbalanced gut microbiome. A lot of research and studies are not showing that. And the reason for this is that our research shows that women with PCOS, immune cells have a lower threshold for releasing their inflammatory products. So they have something called lipopolysaccharides. uh, And these are endotoxins that get released and cause more inflammation. So I do find is that there is an altered gut microbiome with women with PCOS. And that, again, is that the root of the problem? Maybe not. There could be having imbalanced hormones or having high-level cortisol that lowers their immune function and then compromises their intestinal permeability. So, so many factors are at play here. And so that could go ahead and alter the gut microbiome.
1: Yeah, and the gut microbiome, we're starting to realize that it has an impact on fertility and there is a microbiome for the reproductive tract and the uterus is yep. the things that we're discovering now. And I was somebody that really struggled with a lot of digestive symptoms, been to many doctors for that and just really brushed aside as that was IBS.
2: Um,
1: And really, once I improved my diet and one of the things actually that really helped me, which I want to talk to you a little bit more about, was removing environmental toxins. I felt like that tremendously improved my digestion. I am a one-person study, so I can't really tell you that this is going to work for everybody, but in my case, it really helped me. Can we talk a little bit more about how environmental toxins may be impacting those with PCOS?
0: Yeah, and I can speak on your behalf and say that one-person study, I see this in my clients a lot of times where we not necessarily eliminate all of these environmental toxins 100% because the reality is we can't, we're, we're unable to. We're, the times that we're in right now, we're exposed to so much. So I always say that whatever little we can do, that is going to have a huge impact. So environmental toxins, these are things that are chemical hormones that are found in our beauty products, our toiletry products, on our produce, in our meats, And what they do is they mimic the hormone estrogen. And estrogen is like our queen hormone that we need for reproductive health that helps us to mature those follicles. And so the difference between our natural production of estrogen versus the environmental toxin form of estrogen is that it doesn't do what the natural production of estrogen does. It's 10 times more potent, 10 times more stronger. And what it does is think of your hormonal system as there's a docking station for each hormone receptor site, and so these endocrine disruptors, when you are exposed to them, they come there and block that docking station. So now your body has a hard time utilizing its natural production of estrogen, and these also have a huge impact on your gut microbiome. You're more prone to developing more overgrowth bacteria. You are having that increase in intestinal permeability. These environmental toxins, environmental endocrine disruptors also a huge stressor on the system. So when your stress level is really high and stress, when we think of it, doesn't necessarily have to be physical and emotional stress. They can also be chemical stress, environmental stress that many of us are very much exposed to. That causes a suppression of the immune system. And when your immune system, your first line of defense is so low, now you're more vulnerable to developing a lot of gut infections. And then your body's going to take nutrient absorption in the back burner and it's going to work on how can I go ahead and process or get rid of this infection. So that I would say is how it impacts gut health. And it's not surprising that you've noticed majority of your digestive symptoms go away by just eliminating or limiting those environmental toxins
1: definitely for all patients who are trying to conceive, especially for the patient with PCOS, trying to reduce your exposure. And as you said, we can't eliminate our exposure to environmental toxins. It's really not possible. I still have so many things that i need to work on on a daily basis in my home but you know just the day-to-day thing especially when it comes to food and drink i think that's the number one area that you can work on is trying to see how you can remove plastics from your environment as much as possible you yeah. know how you can reduce like you said your exposure to pesticides or meats that are conventionally raised meats that may have hormones or pesticide exposure those kind of things are things that we can start to do, and little by little, because we don't want to get into a situation where we're causing more stress, because stress isn't good for PCOS either, so we really want to try to do it step by step.
0: Yeah, and I like that you mentioned how you don't want to get into the rabbit hole of where are the environmental toxins, and that's it. Over the next week, I'm going to get rid of everything. Mm -hmm. I tried to approach being very OCD and type A, and it drove me nuts. going to do the best that I can and I'm not going to be 100% perfect and I'm still not 100% perfect but the big things I would say that have a huge impact and these are the ones that are very practical and can be done by a lot of people is removing the plastics as much as possible like saying I'm going to invest in a stainless steel glass water bottle and just drink solely from that and remove buying the plastic bottles it's much more cost-effective environmental friendly that limit of VPA exposure can have such a huge impact on your overall eye quality, which is another thing that women with PCOS struggle with. And then if you have to choose between meat and your produce, I would say go with the meat first. And then there's the Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen. You don't have to buy everything organic, but at least make sure your meat is clean because that's something that we're not able to get rid of. And if you have non-organic produce, Really wash them well with vinegar until you're able to go ahead and buy them organically. I mean, this could be an entire podcast itself. Right.
1: Well you mentioned EWG, Environmental Working Group. They have the Dirty Dozen, the Clean 15. They have new lists for 2022. And um, you can find out which vegetables have the highest levels of pesticides and which have the lowest, so you can buy those conventionally grown. And another great option is to buy things frozen because it can be just as nutrient-dense as fresh, and if you're not in a situation where you're able to afford that is one way to help reduce the cost, especially if you buy them frozen in bulk, like a place like Costco or something like that. You can really help to bring the cost down of, for example, like berries. If you buy your berries frozen, that will bring the cost down uh, tremendously.
0: That's a good point too. A lot of people think that, well, if it's not fresh, then it must not be nutrient dense. In fact, there's a certain time period where they have to flash freeze them so that it retains its nutrients and then they freeze it. So not only is it lasting longer, but it's also so much cheaper to buy it frozen versus fresh while still maintaining the nutrient density of those frozen fruits and vegetables.
1: Definitely, I agree. I want to go a little bit back to blood sugar. One of the things I do see a lot of patients who are going keto and one of my concerns with patients who do keto, you can do keto, I think, in a manner where you're still getting a lot of micronutrients and antioxidants from vegetables and fruits. But I do see a lot of people who are eliminating fruits, vegetables, yeah. and whole food groups from their diet, and and then sometimes doing it not healthfully. So they are perhaps purchasing a lot of packaged foods that are labeled keto, yeah. and you might be using... Uh, keto brownie or a keto cookie or a keto bar and that is sort of missing the point of what we're doing trying to incorporate more whole foods what are your thoughts on that
0: that's a very good point i think marketing has never been so great (laughs) more recently Mm -hmm. now because everyone's on this intermittent fasting or you know organic, gluten-free, dairy-free, uh, it's keto, it's paleo. I always tell my patients, never look on the packaging marketing on the front of the package. You always want to look in the back and look at the ingredients label because it could be keto and it can have processed oils there, like seed mm-hmm. oils, and that's inflammatory. So yes, it's keto, may not have a lot of sugar in there, but it could also be contributing to more of the inflammation that you already have. So that's why it's important to look at that. Keto, a lot of the products are very much packaged. There is a healthy way of doing keto and then there's a non-healthy way of doing keto. Some people can get very strict with it and start counting their micros and their macros. I can't have more than two pieces of broccoli because that's going to go over my carb count. And it's like, broccoli is going to feed that good beneficial bacteria. It is going to help you to detoxify that estrogen. It is incredibly important. And so I personally don't like to get into the nitty gritty of that. And I always say, be careful with a lot of these diets because hormonally, long-term, it can actually be more harmful than beneficial for you. So, if someone has insulin resistant, yes, it's low carb. It will put you in a state of ketosis, but be very careful of what it can do to your hormones long term. So, just being mindful of that. And again, the purpose of these diets were that so that they're not overly processed. But we live in a very fast paced world and making a whole nutritious whole food meal at home is intimidating for a lot of people. So, They're just going to pick up a keto bar and that's going to be their meal. And it doesn't have adequate amount of protein. It's mainly just fat. So I feel like that can be very damaging to a lot of patients.
1: There is a place for a keto diet, especially for those maybe who have severe insulin resistance, and it may help them to be motivated to help move those numbers. But I like to think of things that are long-term that we're going to take into pregnancy. The goal for my patients is to conceive. And so I don't want something that they're just going to do now. And then we need to think of a whole nother way to eat when yeah. they're pregnant. And when eliminating whole food groups, I don't think is beneficial for fertility or beneficial for pregnancy or postpartum.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, uh, especially you wanted to make it be more sustainable during pregnancy. Being on a keto diet can be very challenging for pregnant women and they're not getting all of the nutrients that when the mother needs, and then also thinking about the growing baby as well.
1: And a lot of the things that I see in some of these keto products Mm -hmm. are artificial sugars in general and a lot of products in general now. And this really takes us back to anything packaged really is processed. And so trying to reduce your packaged foods overall and and honestly, you're going to save money that way. A lot yeah. of times people are like, well, using this type of diet is so expensive. But if you eliminate packaged foods and you eat more whole foods, and you're buying beans, you're buying lentils, you're buying sweet potatoes, you're buying fruits, vegetables, and you're just really getting maybe some meat, the cost is going to go way down than you're buying all these packaged keto cereals or vegan this bar, you know, those things are very expensive.
0: Yeah. And I also see this often in my practice too, where a lot of my patients are creature tablets, and if they're following a specific diet plan, it's like breakfast is going to be two eggs, bacon, mm-hmm. and that's all they have every single day. And so that also leads to more nutrient deficiencies long-term. And then you're lacking a lot of the essential nutrients that are needed to actually build that good gut microbiome because what does the gut microbiome mean? it needs a really good variety and so if you're sticking to that one diet and it comes with so many restrictions then you're not diversifying your gut microbiome that way too and especially with PCOS as you mentioned if they have a previous history of eating disorder that can really get them into a lot of trouble as well too uh You also have to look at other conditions too, like their kidney function, if they have chronic kidney disease, if they're having liver issues, that may be very challenging for them. So it's not as simple as, oh, you have PCOS? Let's put you on a keto diet. That's going to fix 99% of your problems.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's so important to address diversity and really trying to see eating different types of vegetables, eating different types of fruits. And a thing here we haven't discussed yet is the fiber. Um, That is one of the problems with going on a keto diet. If you are eliminating vegetables or fruits or the majority of vegetables and fruits is no fiber and fiber is really important. Can you talk a little bit about why fiber is important for us and blood sugar control?
0: Yeah. So fiber actually helps to slow that insulin and that blood sugar rise. And so Fiber, I really recommend all of my patients to have about at least 30 to 35, even more grams of fiber a day. And that's important because you need to have that fiber to feed the good bacteria in your gut. You could be taking a probiotic, but without the prebiotic, which is just another fancy word for fiber, you need that in order to actually benefit from the good bacteria in your gut. So, again, it's very, very important to have that. And then also for movements. A lot of patients will come to me and say, well, I'm having a bowel movement once every three days. That's very normal. And you see a lot of women with PCOS, most women with PCOS will have estrogen dominance. I'm not a big fan of that term because we need to be estrogen dominant in the first half of our cycle. But when, when I use the term estrogen dominant, I'm talking more about the second half of birth cycle. And we're never just talking about estrogen alone. We're also looking at estrogen relative to progesterone, and so your body needs to make estrogen, use estrogen, and then detoxify estrogen, or else it becomes very toxic to the liver. And so, if you're lacking that fiber, how are we moving that estrogen along? And so, yeah, that becomes very important. And that's where if you have too much of that estrogen, that suppresses the progesterone production, and vice versa. So it's really important to make sure that we're not eliminating that fiber because, again, the Lipopolysaccharides, the endotoxemia, that actually can be really helped by introducing more fiber into your diet. And so we are seeing that with a lot of patients that have the high insulin markers because it's a carb heavy meal, high fat meal, and it's lacking protein and fiber. And you're having this AKG roller coaster of your blood sugar going up and down. And that's a huge stressor on the body. And causes a lot of inflammation and fiber can certainly help to stabilize that blood sugar, which is crucial for PCOS patients.
1: Don't fear vegetables and fruits. I have so many patients that are like worried about apples, but you know, that's not the issue most of the time in a patient's diet. There's a lot of other things, as you mentioned before, processed carbohydrates, processed seed oils, all of those things that might be inflammatory here. We need to focus on that. And less on, you know, getting sugar from fruits. I think a lot of times it's very difficult for patients unless they have an exact plan that they need to follow to really learn your way and see what works for you. And that's why it's helpful to work with a provider, a practitioner who can help you to navigate what's the best type of meal plan for you. I really don't like the word diet. I think it's important yep. to... Have a lifestyle. This is a lifestyle, right? A PCOS woman needs a lifestyle. And sometimes it's really annoying. My patients are like, I just want to be able to eat whatever. And my friend Amy, she ate whatever and she had no problem getting pregnant. Yeah. Unfortunately, with PCOS, we have to be a little bit more mindful. And, you know, I'm somebody who I'm very sensitive, eat certain things. I still enjoy all different types of food, but sometimes, yes, I will have a breakout after eating certain types of foods. Yeah. And I'm very aware of that. So it takes a while to really learn what kind of things work for you.
0: What I find also, again, back to the eating disorder, is that there's so much demonization of so many fruits out there. Bananas, oh, it's high in sugar, (laughs) it's high in the glycemic index. And there is a way that we can actually mitigate that blood sugar response that, let's say, a banana gets us. But if you're eliminating all of those fruits, then where are you getting your antioxidants from? And how is Mm -hmm. that supporting your egg health and your reproductive health? So I always tell patients, you don't have to eliminate the banana. You don't have to eliminate the apple. It's okay. Have it. Maybe just have a handful of nuts because it has the protein and the fat in there and that's going to help to stabilize your blood sugar. Have the full apple as opposed to apple juice. Apple juice has, it's just fructose. It's fruit sugar. It's removed all of the fiber. Yes, that's going to cause your blood sugar to spike up even more. Whereas a whole apple contains the fiber in there and it's not going to cause your blood sugar to spike. But taking it a step further, I would just say have it with a little bit of almond butter and hemp seeds, or have a handful of nuts with your apple. So you can still enjoy the fruit without having the negative effects of what it could potentially do to your blood sugar and cause it to be so high.
1: Yeah, I agree. I personally experienced that with wearing a continuous glucose monitor and watching how certain foods, you know, I could eat a whole dessert, but in the context of eating a full meal prior, my blood sugar wouldn't spike as much as me just eating like a piece of bread on its own. And so combining foods can be really important. And you can see, you can ask your provider if you're able to get a continuous glucose monitor to sort of manage your blood sugar. That can be helpful for those who are curious how certain foods can help them.
0: Yeah, I've tried one myself too. And I was like, wow, this is amazing body information that I have. I didn't know that I responded to certain foods. And then that makes you be more aware of what foods you could be having. And there were certain foods where I was like, I thought that was really going to spike up my blood sugar, but it actually did pretty well. So I think there's so much beauty in technology and and being able to use it this way so that we get more information.
1: I completely agree. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about supplements for PCOS. I get a lot of patients coming in with this giant bag of supplements and I'm taking this, I'm taking this because I read it online. We spoke about nutrition first because in my mind, nutrition is sort of the focus. We start there, you have a good diet that's going to help you maybe need less supplementation. You're not going to fix a poor diet with your supplements. So focus yes. on the nutrition piece first, and then we add in supplements as needed. Now, I know supplements is very difficult because every patient is different. Can you speak about some of the key supplements that you might use in some of your patients?
0: Yeah. I like to really start with whole foods first too. And even if there are certain whole foods that they're not able to get, my go-to, is like a nature's whole food multivitamin is liver. If you can eat liver, it is incredible for you. It has all of your Main multivitamin. It has the heme iron in there and it's much more bioavailable. Not everyone is a fan of beef liver. They can't stand the taste of it, cooking it, the sliminess of it. And so there are desiccated beef liver capsules that you can take and use that as a whole food multivitamin. As I mentioned, even with nutrition, it should be a very personalized approach. Same goes for supplements. But never start with supplements and say, well, I have to take this supplement and I'll just slowly work on my nutrition. You really have to get the foundations down with nutrition and then use supplements as supplements. They should be supplementary to what you are having. But across the board, some general ones that I would recommend is probably going to be myoenopsitol and dechiroenopsitol because we are seeing a lot of that insulin resistance. And then, especially if a patient is trying to conceive, we have seen that studies show it can actually help to improve egg quality. So I find that. That is one across the board that I would actually recommend. Another is a fish oil, a high-quality omega-3 third-party tested fish oil supplement. Most women with PCOS have some level degree of inflammation. And they also have cholesterol levels, high triglycerides, high LDL, low HDL. And I find that fish oil supplements can certainly help with that as well. And then everything outside of that is going to be very personalized. There's things like alpha lipoic acid. there's cell palmetto if you have the high testosterone, and you can actually benefit from cell palmetto. There is berberine if you do have insulin-resistant issues. But being mindful of those as well, too taking those long-term can also be harmful as well so. You don't necessarily want to be taking a supplement because it's helped you for such a good amount of time and then taking a long term, sometimes too good or a supplement that is really good for you. Taking too much of that may not be the best thing for you. So that's why working very closely with a practitioner who's going to be doing continuous blood work and modifying your protocol to your specific needs, I think is really important.
1: Yeah, I agree. I try to keep my supplements for the most part pretty simple. I do very similar things to what you mentioned. I don't give patients like 15 different supplements because again, we don't need to add more stress to the situation. I don't think you need to do all those things. We just want to keep it a little bit more basic, a little bit more approachable for all patients, affordable because supplements I know can get very expensive. Some people could be spending like $400 a month on supplements because they're taking so many Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure that this is something that women can do long term. And so trying to keep it minimal and really focus on your nutrition, I think, is the way to go.
0: And if you need to be on certain number of supplements, I certainly don't think a patient who just has PCOS needs to be on that many supplements. If they have other conditions associated and they're working on kind of an autoimmune condition and other gut issues, yeah, they could potentially be on different types of supplements, maybe 10, 15 different types of supplements. And that may be needed if they're dealing with a lot of issues. But I think that it always comes down to food and nutrition. uh, And that's where you're going to have the huge impact. And then supplements should be used temporarily. They should never long term. And the goal should be your practitioner should just get you back to basics.
1: I agree. Well, I could honestly speak to you about PCOS forever. We could probably have a few episodes just on this topic. We really could have a whole podcast on this topic, but can you tell us what are some of your top tips for those with PCOS kind of key takeaways from today's discussion or what you like
0: women with PCOS to know? I would say, keep it very simple. And a lot of the stuff that you can do is actually free medicine. And that is going to sleep on time, making sure that you have healthy sleep hygiene, really support your natural circadian rhythm, get that sunlight, turn off the blue light at nighttime. Sleep is incredible and can do a number of things to your health, PCOS diagnosed or not. Nutrition, making sure that you're getting fat, protein and fiber and healthy complex carbs at every meal and make sure that within the first 30 to 60 minutes upon waking up, you're setting yourself up for blood sugar success throughout the rest of the day. Try to get majority of your calories in earlier in the day as opposed to later in the evening. I find that a lot of my clients are Waking up highly stressed, getting to work, responding to emails, and they don't sit down to have a proper meal until one o'clock in the afternoon. And they're like, oh, I'm gonna in fasting. Isn't that great for me? And then they mm-hmm. have a very heavy dinner. So really just keeping it back to basics of nutrition, sleep, and then stress management is so incredibly key. I feel like that's probably gonna be the most important one. Women with PCOS have a high link to depression and anxiety. And managing that stress is going to be important. Setting an hour of time to yourself where you can just slow down, meditate, have a routine and structure in place is going to have a huge impact. So don't get into the whole fancy supplements, fancy nutrition plans. Doing these basics can actually eliminate a lot of the issues that you are having.
1: And you know what? It takes time too all of these things take time. It takes a lot of patience. One of the hard things to balance is most of the patients who come to see me or come to see you, unfortunately Mm -hmm. they wanted to be pregnant last year, right? Yes. And so time feels very difficult for patients to, if it thinks like it's dragging, this nutrition thing takes so long or doing all this work with sleep or stress reduction, it's not getting me to the end result. But what I want for patients is yes, to get to that positive pregnancy test, but more importantly, to have a uncomplicated pregnancy as much as we can avoid and a healthy postpartum recovery. And I think by setting the foundation now is only going to benefit you in long-term for years. And so that's really my focus.
0: Yeah, and I think it's not just about getting that positive pregnancy test. You really want to have a lot of compassion and kindness towards yourself throughout this journey because it can get very, very challenging. Celebrate those small wins and turn them into big ones. Don't focus on the negatives and that can be very, very challenging. I've been there through a three-year infertility struggle and like you said, you wanted to just get pregnant. You wanted to find the magic pill. What is going to be Mm -hmm. that one? That's going to get me pregnant next cycle. Just be very kind and compassionate to yourself because your body needs that for healing uh, and be very patient with yourself.
1: I agree. Thank you so much for your time today, Zermina. All your wisdom, all the things you shared today. I know it's going to be so beneficial for so many who are listening. How can listeners connect with you?
0: Yeah, they can connect with me using my website, which is www.livingholistic.com. I'm also. Active on social media as well. So, Instagram is one of the main platforms that I try to keep up with as best as possible in this season of life.
1: I know it can get difficult sometime.
0: Yeah. Now, I always close with a
1: question to my guests. I'm really big on supporting mental well being for those on the fertility journey. And I usually recommend trying to find small things that bring them joy throughout the day. Can you tell us how you cultivate joy in your own life?
0: Yeah. For me, two things. Number one is spending time with loved ones. So that would be my husband and my daughter, just being able to disconnect and be present with them. And the second is to be of service to other people. There's a sense of fulfillment that one gets when you help others. So those are things that I like to do to cultivate joy.
1: I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time and all the work you do for women who are trying to conceive and those women who are struggling with PCOS.
0: Thank you, Shola. And it's amazing. I think this podcast is very much needed for a lot of women. I wish I had this kind of support because um, going through fertility challenges can be a very isolating journey. And so I think it's wonderful what you're doing and providing a platform for women to gain resources and find a community where they feel like they're not so alone.
1: The Fertility Journeys Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review or tag us on Instagram at Fertility Journeys Podcast. This will help us to spread awareness and reach new listeners. Episodes drop every week, and you can learn more at fertilityjourneys.org.
0: Next time on The Fertility Journeys Podcast.
1: Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Christine Marin about the role of thyroid infertility and preconception.
2: Welcome, Dr. Marin. For women who are struggling with fertility or maybe not getting pregnant as quickly as they think they ought to, I really strongly advocate to check their thyroid function. Unfortunately, it's not. One of the labs that's universally recommended, it ought to be because it plays such an important role in our fertility and then in our ability not only to get pregnant, but to maintain a healthy pregnancy. Women with hypothyroidism, if you are able to get pregnant, can then have increased rates of miscarriage and a lot of other sequelae that can happen from blood sugar to blood pressure to even birth defects. It's just one of those very critical hormones in fertility and pregnancy. Clinical signs or symptoms are things like fatigue or hair loss. sensitivity, weight gain, slow metabolism, depression, irregular periods, dry skin, muscle aches. But above and beyond that, there's other risk factors for why you should be screened for thyroid. When we think of risk benefit, like what's the risk? It's not a fancy test. It's not invasive.
0: So potentially huge benefits. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.